Psychology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. I'm Ben Law. Today's episode, Same Sex Love, Archetypal Reflections, will be introduced by Mary Doherty, Jungian analyst and past president of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. But before we get to that, I want to mention a couple upcoming programs that we have. On December 4th, we have Under the Skin, The Trauma of Acquaintance Rape with Dan Ross, 2 to 5 p.m. And the week after that, on December 11th, we have Shared Realities with Mark Winborn from 2 to 5 p.m. We are offering continuing education credits for both of those classes, and if you are interested in more information about them, go to our website, www.youngchicago.org. And now here's Mary Doherty to introduce today's lecture. Hello, my name is Mary Doherty, and I'm a Jungian analyst and a member of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. In this podcast, Carolyn Stevens, Jungian analyst and wise woman of our Jungian community, introduces Karen Carrington, a psychotherapist, author, and teacher who shares her reflections and understandings about same-sex love and women loving women. This presentation on same-sex love was a groundbreaking event on the evening of February 23, 1991. Karen thanked the Young Institute for its sponsorship of this historical event during the years of struggle to achieve legal and cultural rights for gay and lesbian people. I think it is safe to say that Karen's presentation raised the consciousness of many in the audience concerning same-sex love. Karen situates her comments within the political struggle for lesbian and gay rights at that time. In her presentation, she calls for a restorative analytic theory based in a deep understanding of what it means to love a member of one's own gender for ourselves and for the collective. Karen quotes an early comment by Jung that homosexuality should not be the concern of legal authority, that persons loving people of their own sex should not be outside of the law. She also examines the impact of Jung's theory of contrasexuality, as well as the work of Robert Hopke on the subject of same-sex love and of Christine Downing on the topic of women loving women. Finally, Karen opens the discussion to include questions about what is our true erotic nature, as well as questions that explore the overvaluation of separation and the symbolic quest of the hero within current cultural values. She has authored and edited books on this topic, including Same-Sex Love and the Path to Wholeness. I'm sure you will enjoy this presentation. Thank you. It is a very great pleasure to me tonight to introduce Karen, a wise and beautiful woman whom I first met at uh, Ghost Ranch Women's Gatherings back in 1984. I uh, first became acquainted with her interest in the topic she'll pursue tonight when she gave a paper at Random Ranch in 1988, one which had previously been uh, given to the American Academy of Psychoanalysis. Karen tells me that she spent 15 years 
reflecting on the concerns and the experiences of women, particularly of women loving women. And she has come to some understandings, some ways of seeing that she will share with us tonight. Um, more to the formal point, perhaps, Karen's a psychotherapist in private practice in San Francisco, a photographer, the author of an upcoming book uh, to be published by Chiron, and co-editor of a volume to come out in 1992, published by Shambhala, called Same-Sex Love, A Path to Individuation. So saying, welcome, Karen. just told my friends if I got too nervous I'd ask to be beamed up and you could make up the rest. <laughs> um, I arrived in Chicago last night and uh, was taken from the airport by cab to the Hilton where the Union Institute graciously accommodated me. And um, it's an interesting synchronicity. I was last in Chicago in 1968, and I was last in Chicago in 68 in the Hilton Hotel working for Senator McCarthy on the day that the minority plank on the war failed. And uh, I was sitting in front of the Hilton Hotel when the flying wedges came around the corners, and um, that was a very profound experience in my young idealistic life something I've never forgotten. So I was thinking about how synchronous it is that I'm here today and tonight when it seems again that, once again, a minority plank on the war is failing. And uh, so I've been thinking about all of that and wondering um, at some level when we're ever going to get it right. At the same time, I was thinking how um, grateful I feel to have been invited to talk with you on the topic of same-sex love, uh, and how important it is these moments of light in the darkness uh, of oppression that men who love men and women who love women have been living with. And uh, in that sense, there's a kind of healing for me in being able to talk with you and share with you some ideas and maybe strike up a dialogue and see what we can weave together uh, in the interest of a restorative uh, analytic theory and just a deep understanding of the meaning for ourselves and for the collective in this choice that some of us have made to love a member of our own gender. So I, I think that the Union Institute of Chicago is to be commended for um, really initiating this, this evening and, and the workshop tomorrow. I understand the response has been very strong to the workshop and clearly there is a good turnout tonight and uh, 
interest in really having a more meaningful sense of what is called in our culture homosexuality, and which I hope will begin to reframe tonight. And uh, it's a courageous and compassionate thing for the, for the Institute to do. Since I'm intuitive, I have to sort of watch my notes and my watch, or we will be here all night. <laughs> to really begin to amplify archetypal patterns in same-sex relationships is a very complex task. There's so many variables. Uh, it seems obviously clear that there's not a homosexuality any more than there's a heterosexuality. There are many ways for women to love women and men to love men in committed uh, relationship or sexual liaisons or whatever they are. And uh, so it's rather a, a complex uh, task. Furthermore, I think that uh, the experience of men together and the experience of women together is really different. Tonight I'm wanting to talk a little bit about uh, same-sex love as a restorative phenomena, using the platonic idea of love as a restorative experience, not just the experience of filling in what's missing but actually a profound restorative experience. So I'm going to use that context all night. And it seems to me from that point of view that the restorative task for men and the restorative task for women are really quite different. Furthermore, uh, we can't really talk. I, I don't feel, I think it's unconsciousable to talk about same-sex love without placing it in a historical and cultural context. So you can see already this is getting complicated. Uh, and I think in addition to that, I don't want to neglect the fact that the courage and soulful response of people in same-sex uh, love relationships has particular meaning for their individual lives and the lives of people they're close to, but it also has implications for the collective that are particularly relevant in my understanding of what's going on right now. Uh, Robert Hopke, in his book, Young Jungians and Homosexuality, did a, a wonderfully um, thorough job of combing all of the collected works of Jung and Jung's uh, dream seminars and his letters and so forth. And uh, putting together in that volume, for those of you who may be interested, all the things that Jung actually said in his writings about homosexuality. Uh, it may seem like a paltry offering that there are 15 references in a total 20 volumes of his collected works and seven references in his letters and correspondences. But what emerges from those references uh, were a series of what Robert has called attitudes, five attitudes and three theories, which for that time in the analytic movement were really quite enlightened. Um, 
one of the first attitudes that Hoppe describes is uh, would seem at a conscious level antiquated, but I think it is still a kind of enlightened point of view. Jung felt that homosexuality should not be the concern of legal authorities. He felt that if a person loved a person of their own sex, that they should not be considered outside the law. Um, it may seem that everyone would state that now, but there are many states, as you well know, where homosexuality is still illegal. And furthermore, there's this uh, fervor for law and order that's uh, really quite amazing. I, I was reading an article in the Bay Express, and apparently hate crimes are down substantially in the city of New York. And yet, in 1990, hate crimes against gay people were up 183 percent in 1990 alone. So, Jung's idea, as antiquated as it may seem, was visionary. And of course, at that time, in the German Penal Code, there was a section that uh, the Nazis cited to justify the incarceration, torture, and murder of uh, tens of thousands of gay people in Germany at that time. Um, I also read another interesting thing, that in Pennsylvania, the uh, group called Parents of Gays and Lesbians wanted to be part of the Adopt-a-Highway program. You know the Adopt-a-Highway program where you go out and you pick up trash along the side of the road, and they weren't allowed to adopt a section of highway because that would be uh, uh, bad for the morality of Pennsylvania. So <laughs> the parents of gays and lesbians are not good enough to pick up the garbage on the Pennsylvania freeways. So as you can see, Jung was a little ahead of his time. The other thing that, that uh, one of the other attitudes that Hopke identifies right away that's very Jungian is, uh, and I think very sensible, is that we have to consider uh, the, an individual's personal life and personal life choices in a cultural and historical context. Uh, the word homosexual, as some of you probably are aware, is a relatively new phenomenon. I think the word came into operation just about a hundred years ago. And apparently it, it came to be, uh, it was a word coined apparently because there was a way in which same-sex love was posing a direct threat to heterosexual reality. Um, the reason I don't like the word homosexual is because to me it's uh, objectifying. And I think if we're going to have any meaningful understanding of same-sex love, we have to do it from subjective experience and subjective information. And we have to cultivate some subjective language. Furthermore, if we talk about homosexual as opposed to heterosexual, we're in an oppositional field. And we're somehow feeding uh, what I think is a fundamental uh, error in thinking that we uh, we do well to correct 
quickly. It's a dualistic system. Uh, Robert Hockey points this out in his book, and I think it's very true that uh, we would do well to think rather uh, about the development of a theory of sexual preference that's on a continuum, and that this would be in keeping with Jung's understanding of the contrasexual aspect of our psyches. For those of you who may not be familiar with this theory, Jung's idea was that all of us uh, are anatomically, obviously, one gender, though some people do change their gender, um, but we are, we come in anatomically one gender, but psychologically we have a contrasexual aspect. He called this the anima in, in, for the man and the animus for the woman. And Jung's idea was that in the individuation process there is a kind of integration and deep relationship that's built between the contrasexual dimensions of our psyche. And he treated this symbolically and also saw the, the uh, uh, relationship between men and women as providing a, a projective uh, object for that integration. Well, of course, then people say, well, what about the anima and animus for the, the gay and lesbian individual? And that's where it begins to break down and this whole polarization of homosexual and, and heterosexual begins to really fall apart. So again, if we're looking at, at the experience of same-sex love or love at all as restorative and we look at it on a continuum rather than in some oppositional term, I think that we'll, we'll have a gentler and more profound uh, attitude and container for really understanding people's uh, sexual love choices. If we are working also with a continuum rather than oppositional forces, we're also asked to deal more with subtlety. And analogy and less with opposition. Um, so, let's see. If we look at the cultural and historical context for a moment, if we look at patriarchy, the patriarchal reality that we're all living with that's at the heart of this immoral war that we're engaged in, um, we see that there has been this obsession. I'm trying to think of how to shorten this. There's been this obsession in patriarchy with separating everything out, with separativism. The classic myth of this culture, one that many people still adhere to with great passion, is the myth of the hero. And the hero's task, <coughs> excuse me, is to... Um, separate out from his culture, go on a journey, slay the dragon, and come back with some profound learning that he then reinfuses the culture with. But there's a tremendous emphasis on that separating out, and also quite an intense emphasis on the slaying of the dragon. I was just at the Art Institute today um, and saw that wonderful painting of uh, St. George slaying the dragon. It's, it's really glorious 
was offensive to me given what I was thinking about today, but it was a really glorious painting. You're very lucky to have that collection in, in your city. It's a, a wonderful collection of, of art. And um, Joseph Campbell said that the symbol for all pre-patriarchal culture is the snake. Okay, you have to follow me. I'm going to do an intuitive thing here. It may not quite make sense, but it makes a lot of sense. He said, <laughs> the, the um, symbol of all pre-patriarchal culture is the snake, the serpent. The object of the heroic quest is to slay the serpent. What that means at one level then is that the object of the heroic quest is matricide. And Mary Daly, a well-known feminist theologian and philosopher, has said that the actual enemy of every phallocratic war is the self of women. Or from a Jungian point of view, we might say, is the feminine essence in all of us. That that is what's abused. I was reading, I have to divert for a moment, I was reading the New York Times on the plane coming out here. I was sitting beside a lovely woman whose son is a uh, professor of theoretical physics at the University of Chicago. It's another passion of mine, is theoretical physics. And she and I were chatting, and then I was looking through the newspaper, and I read this interview. You may have seen it yesterday on the front page of the New York Times of a man who was calling his wife from the front lines. You read that. He's calling his wife from the front lines to tell her where to bury him where to send their 16-month-old daughter to college, saying goodbye to her, knowing that if the ground war begins, as it seems it almost inevitably will, that he would lose his life. And he's saying to her, now pull it together. Get a grip. Don't cry. And I was thinking, my God, you know, what a denial of what was going on in his body. In his body, he must just be terrified. But he has to deny that and be heroic. And it's killing of a sense of the self. And it's a killing of that sense of self that lets us know we're all connected. That when one person suffers, we all suffer. When are we going to hear the statistics of this war? When are we going to hear about the 100,000 Iraqis we've killed? So, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but not really. The historical and cultural context in which we exist is one in which that kind of separation is possible. We can separate heterosexual from homosexual, body from mind and spirit, uh, what we are really feeling from what our body is telling us. All this separating out. And we really can believe from that point of view that there is another. There is an other. This is the context in which people of the same sex are coming to love one another. People, heterosexual people are loving one another also in this context. But this is quite important because 
as Catherine Keller said in her book, uh, From a Broken Web, what would now happen if we were somehow to come back to that original continuum, call it narcissistic, call it matriarchal, call it whatever you'd like, empathic, that empathic continuum where we know that we're all one, what would happen if we came back to that, embraced it, and saw differentiation as a more subtle process along that line and along that continuum? Things would be very different. We would not have statements like, see if I can find this, from Margaret Mahler, the defense against the perpetual longing of the human being for reunion with the erstwhile symbiotic mother, a longing that, the, that threatens individual entity and identity, must be warded off even beyond childhood. That somehow part of what I think has lent itself to a misunderstanding of same-sex love, a big part of what's led to this misunderstanding is some idea that it's better to be separate and to separate out and to be a rugged individual in some way than to recognize the way in which we are in fact all connected and refine our, our understanding of our own identity along those lines. Now, one of the big problems that uh, is clearly of concern in women's relationships with women is a kind of fusion that can occur. I don't know if this is the same issue for men. It seems as if, as I say, their, their tasks are a bit different. But there's a way in which women, we as women, were all separated prematurely from our mothers. All studies of childhood development show that mothers tend to wean their daughters sooner than they wean their sons and that they will not tolerate. They're very fussy with their daughters about their daughters' eating habits. So women tend to be weaned a little prematurely. And furthermore, they're weaned from mothers, many of whom don't have their, didn't have their own identity. So there's a restorative process potentially available to women in their close erotic bonding with other women that may find them resting for a while in that merger. I don't know that that's such a terrible thing. I think James Hillman may be correct that perhaps it's not the homosexual who has the mother problem. Maybe it's depth psychology. Of course, nothing's that simple. Everything that I'm so aware that everything in the stereotypic notion of the lesbian or the gay man that's not so is also so in some way. So it's a complex field. So I think one of the things that same sex love has to contend with, and those of us who love someone of the same sex have to contend with, is this very deeply ingrained, almost at a cellular level, ingrained uh, cultural reality that values separateness and difference 
more than sameness and connection. And I also feel that by talking about our experiences and uh, at a very subjective level, we can contribute, perhaps, to a deeper understanding of the value of that subtle differentiation within a field of similarity, rather than always relying on the oppositional forces as a way to individuation. Shawna Macy, a friend of mine and very active in the peace movement, wrote an article uh, last summer for Common Boundary in which she said, something important is happening in our world that you're not going to read about in the newspapers. I consider it the most fascinating and hopeful development of our time. It has to do with what is happening to the notion of the self. The self is the metaphoric construct of identity and agency the hypothetical piece of turf on which we construct our strategies for survival, the notion around which we focus our instincts for self-preservation, our needs for self-approval, and the boundaries of our self-interest. The conventional notion of the self with which we've been raised and to which we've been conditioned by mainstream culture is being undermined. What Alan Watts calls the skin-encapsulated ego and what Gregory Bateson referred to as the fundamental epistemological error of Occidental civilization is being unhinged, peeled off. It is being replaced by wider constructs of identity and self-interest, by what Joanna is calling the ecological self or the eco-self, which is coexistent with other beings and the life of our planet. I call this process the greening of the self goes on. It's a quite a wonderful piece. And I, I want to bring it to your attention and make sure that I'm communicating with you about this fundamental paradigm shift around the boundaries, around boundaries. Boundaries are becoming more permeable. You may notice this with your clients. More and more my clients' dreams of environmental destruction, war, and so forth are not merely metaphors for their own psychological development. They are also, in fact, their resonance to what's occurring in the world. So the boundaries between individual ego and collective are breaking down. And I think in some way, people who are working very diligently with their own uh, sexual identity and with the recognition of that continuum of sexual preference in which they exist are on the forefront of that new paradigm in a very profound way. One of the problems with the, all the work that Jung did, from my point of view, is that, first of all, most of it is directed to male gay men, very little to uh, gay women. And his conclusions, 
in both cases, whether it was gay men or lesbians, was that it was elementally uh, an immature choice. He began to change this a bit toward the end of his life, but he did not present any case material of individuals whose, who had strong, uh, who were in strong positions with regard to their own individuation. At the same time, it may be that they were in a stronger position with regard to their individuation. He just didn't see it because he was looking through a particular lens. But that's one of the things that's a bit troubling to me, that even with Jung's wisdom and the very positive contributions he made, he nevertheless held as one of his primary theories that homosexuality represented in both men and women an elemental problem with the feminine and therefore was immature. There were Jungians who, as recently as 10 years ago, would say that uh, if someone were homosexual, they couldn't really individuate. What I'm trying to do tonight as we talk is present a, a different cultural and psychological context in which to consider the whole issue of our homosexuality, if you like, our sexual preference. And uh, I think there was a great misunderstanding of what we're doing in gravitating back toward the feminine, whether as lesbians or gay men. I think that for gay men, as I understand it, and I, I don't want to make the mistake that's been made for centuries where men have spoken for women. I really don't want to speak a lot for gay men tonight. I just say a few things that some of my gay male friends have told me. But it seems as if gay men are not so oppositional with the feminine. It may not be that they have a severe mother problem, which has been the classic, or a severe anima problem, but rather that they're just less oppositional. When we look at that continuum, that perhaps a gay man is more comfortable with the archetypal feminine than a heterosexual man. Now, I, I know that it's the kiss of death to make generalizations this way, but I'm trying to do the best that I can here. You know, Annie Dillard says writing a book is spinning out of control with daring and passion. And that's, I'm just doing the best that I can do. The language is kind of constrictive. But it does seem to me that the gay men I know have a more fluid relationship with the feminine and a less oppositional one. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're immature or that they never separated from their mother. It may just mean they have a more fluid relationship with the feminine. Um, for women, I think that the draw to the return to some aspects of their own woman nature through the mirroring and analogy of intimacy with another woman is not to be construed as immature. There are immature relationships between women, if you wish. They're just as mature as they are, you know, the same as heterosexual. They're very immature heterosexual relationships. Believe me, 90% of my practice is heterosexual. 
and 90% of my practice seems to focus on relationship issues. So, believe me, gay and lesbian people do not have the market on immaturity in relationship. <laughs> Having spent the first 33 years of my life in heterosexual relationship, um, I would say that's definitely true. But I think women are doing something a little bit different in their move back to the feminine. Mm. Was it Gloria, Gloria Steinem? Remember Gloria Steinem said that Marilyn Monroe is a female impersonator. <laughs> and Marilyn Monroe is one of my heroes. I don't know what it says of me, but in my studio I have a gorgeous uh, portrait of Georgia O'Keeffe, photographic portrait, and several of Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I don't want that analyzed, but <laughs> I think a lot of our mothers were female impersonators. And that there's been this deep desire on the parts of both men and women, I think, to come to uh, deeper feminine. And I know men are also now really wanting to come to a much deeper sense of their own masculine or maleness. But for women, loving other women, that mirroring can be very essential. You remember earlier I talked about this heroic quest. And in the Babylonian myth, uh, Marduk slays his mother, Tiamat, and flings her parts out into the universe as a way of creating the world. And that image is so graphic for me and so poignant because it seems to me as women we are trying to gather ourselves back together, remember who we are. And deep erotic bonding between women sexualized or not as patriarchy thinks of sexuality but deep erotic bonding for, between women can be uh, one way of deeply remembering who we are we have been ourselves before and we're just trying to remember um <laughs> So I think for women to come together, there's a kind of picking up of lost parts and lost pieces. The patriarchy has had the feminine pretty effectively divided, and we've all been part of that. I still do it in my own psyche. I remember when I first fell in love with a woman. It was such a miracle. But I, I would think when I would go to see her, or we'd go out for dinner or something, I'd think, well, you know, I had a six-foot-four husband, and two stepchildren, little stepchildren I was raising, you know, we were all in our gender-appropriate roles to some extent, and though I was athletic and outspoken, and, but, and we did the right things, and it was wonderful. I, I still love my husband and the children very much. But when I got with a woman, I didn't quite know, what, what's the gender-appropriate thing to do now? Well, this is how my father treated my mother. Am I supposed to open the door for her? Well, who's going to open the door for me, you know? And... It's, it's humorous now, 15 years later, but at the time, it was really a, a profound dilemma. And um, I realized that a lot of my life had been falling into a role that had been defined for me by a culture that was um, held together by things that I was finding I didn't particularly value. Um, and that's been very valuable. It's been invaluable. It's like being in free fall. If you take seriously 
the discrepancy between your, for me to have taken seriously the discrepancy between my genuine impulses toward the woman I love and what I've been culturally conditioned to see as loving toward a woman, it's been very profound. And I'm sure for those of you who've had a similar experience, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I think another reason that um, Jung and others have seen homosexuality as immature, uh, besides its being a, a problem with the feminine, is that it's also very embodied. We're going to use this word homosexuality or same-sex love. Sexual preference is an embodied experience. You know, do you like chocolate ice cream? Do you like vanilla ice cream? It sort of boils down to that. It's like, what does it for you? It's an embodied experience, and it may change over a lifetime. Clearly, for me, that has been the case. And I know for many other women and men alike, that's been the case. And for other people, they've always been with one preference or the other. There's no right way to do it. It's just all different. But it's an embodied experience. And one of the things that Christine Downing points out in her wonderful book, which I see is now available in paperback, Myths and Mysteries of Same-Sex Love, it's a wonderful book, wonderful, very deep, uh, is that the homosexual, quote-unquote, like the hysteric and the child, uh, is asked to carry all the repressed sensuality and sexuality of this culture. One of the reasons we have so many instances of or, or such a profound uh, energetic uh, homophobia, I think, in the culture is because uh, when those of us who love people of the same sex come forth, everything else comes forth that's been repressed around it. And that's very threatening. A major component of homophobia, I think, is a hatred of the body. And the body has also been linked with the feminine. So it may be that the idea that homosexual people have a problem with the feminine is not quite right. Perhaps what they're doing is a restorative thing with the feminine. I definitely see that's what women are doing. It's restorative. It's not a problem. It can be a problem. I don't want to, I don't want to make it black and white, but I'm trying to correct a misconception. The other, another dimension of the feminine, of course, that is very, very uh, poignantly active in uh, same-sex relationships is the element of eros. And one of the things that's very profound in the gay and lesbian culture in different ways is that eros and death are very, very close. This has come home to us at this time, again, staying with the cultural and historical context in the gay male community with the uh, outbreak of the AIDS epidemic, which is not contrary to propaganda, really abating much. For women, the proximity of eros and death takes another form. I recently got a letter from uh, a mutual friend of ours who said that she didn't know if she was going to be able to sustain this uh, love with another woman. Because she said it's so close to something. It's so close. I don't know. What is it? She said, is it so close to mother? And I wrote it back and I said, I, I think it's really so close to death. In the sense that when we come back to the source, we come back 
to such elemental longings and vulnerabilities as women loving other women. We come back to something so elemental that sometimes it feels like we're going to be annihilated as a result of that depth of love for another woman. It's a very different feeling than I had even in my most vulnerable moments with my husband, which were very vulnerable and beautiful. It's a different feeling. It's so close to something very pre-verbal, primitive, elemental, that I see that the erotic and death are forever linked in a continual opening that's possible for one woman with another. And that may also be true between men. What I'm more aware of is, for men, is that, that Eros and, and death are so vividly and not metaphorically at all linked in an embodied way in AIDS. But I think that this proximity of Eros and the threat of annihilation for women is so intense that it really has a profound impact on how we are sexual with one another. And we don't have time to go into that tonight, but I'm very interested in this subject of what's our true erotic nature as women. Another way that uh, I think same-sex relationship, particularly I've noticed between women, I, again, I don't know that much about what, how men would identify this, is that women seem to be in bonding, rebonding with one another in erotic ways. They seem to, it seems to be one meth, one uh, vehicle for bonding again with the earth and with nature. I wrote about this in my article in Psychological Perspectives, which is also available here tonight. That I have an article in it on women loving women, and uh, John Beebe has a wonderful article on male partnership. So, buy our books. No. And, uh, but one of the things that I, I, I talk about there is that if a woman comes back to that source in love with another woman, then she comes back in a way to to a, a deeper connection to the source of all life and to Mother Earth. So maybe it's not so much a problem with the feminine, maybe it's a restorative act for the feminine. Robert Johnson, whose books are also available out here tonight, <laughs> I don't work for the bookstore, I just noticed this, said that getting back to the self is really getting back to the feminine, that merged state where the ego is not the center of the personality. Getting back to the self is getting back to the feminine, that merged state where the ego is not the center of the personality. I think what he's talking about here is not merger as fusion, but merger as empathy. I think we have to differentiate. There's a fusing merger that can be part of a developmental stage of love relationships on this sexual preference continuum. And then there's another uh, merger that's more differentiated and empathic, and I think that's the one he's referring to here. A second theory of Jung's is that uh, homosexuality is constitutional. And um, I don't know what to say about that. I think bisexuality is constitutional and uh, that we all are on the continuum in different 
different, you know, between what is called, quote-unquote, homosexual and what is called heterosexual and what's called bisexual, and we're all at different times in our life at different places on that continuum. So I, I don't know. There are people who have, I've talked with and worked with who do feel that they're constitutionally um, homosexual, and um, if that's their truth, then that's their truth. Jung was very good at I think about one thing in particular, it was wonderful, that he held the same values for all people regardless of sexual preference and said that ultimately, um, let's see if I can find the exact quote, an individual's homosexuality has its own meaning peculiar to the individual in question and psychological growth consists in becoming conscious of that meaning. So he stressed our understanding the meaning that our homosexuality has for us or our preference, sexual preference at any given time. So for some people, the issue is constitutional. The third theory of Jung's that I, I want to mention and kind of see if we can draw some closure here, he developed in uh, his work on the psychology of the transference and in his uh, later writings, he said that homosexuality may be an acting out of an incomplete detachment from the original archetype of the hermaphrodite, that unbroken state of non-differentiation which comes before all else. Well, you can see that from what I'm weaving, I've been trying to weave for you tonight, it may not be an acting out of that undifferentiated state. Perhaps for some people it is. Perhaps at some time in our life it is, but so what? Because the, the intention is to get us back into connection with our connection to all life. So why is that a sin? Why is that an acting out? I think it's really quite a profound theory. It's a theory it's of the three the first being that homosexuality is immature and represents a problem with the feminine. The second, that it's constitutional. The third, that it's somehow an acting out of an incomplete detachment from the original archetype of the hermaphrodite. I, I think it's the most fascinating and potentially interesting. Because he's saying, in a sense, what I've been saying, that, or what I was trying to say, that's why it's such a good theory, that in a way we're trying to go back to something original and heal what was not complete. It's interesting to me that one of the, the leading uh, archetypal patterns in relationships between men uh, who same-sex in same-sex relationship is uh, teacher-student. And I was thinking about that last week. I was talking to my brother, and he's been reading uh, Robert Bly's book, Iron John. And he was talking about how he was crying on the phone. My brother never cries. He was crying on the phone about what he had missed out on in growing up with my father. I said, you think you've got troubles? You should hear my story. <laughs> but he missed out on that teaching. And I think men, that's something they missed out on. And they are trying to correct or heal. It's just like a good analysis. It seems to me in a really good depth analysis, 
we provide the environment in which a person can come back to that place where they've been most vulnerable and wounded and blocked and heal it and move forward in a new way. I think in the very best deep understanding of the individuation potential for same-sex love, we have that same paradigm at work. I remember Edward Edinger's uh, book, Ego and Archetype. It's one of the first Jungian books I tried to read. Um, it was pretty difficult. But I met Dr. Edinger once, and he was such a dear person that I forgave him for <laughs> his denseness. And then after that, I read Jung, and I really forgave him. <laughs> but Dr. Edinger talks about... Uh, development from a union in the union paradigm and he talks about how we all come in undifferentiated that our life's work is to differentiate and then come at the end of our lives in some way back to that recognition of wholeness from a differentiated point of view uh, that may also be what T.S. Eliot had in mind in the, that famous uh, section of poetry from um, the four quartets when he said we, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to come back to the place from which we began and to know it for the first time so to condemn or denigrate an experience which of same sex love which brings us back to that original state seems limiting that is not to say that undifferentiated relationship anywhere on the sexual preference continuum doesn't have problems and that there isn't a shadow side to all of this. I'm not talking about the shadow tonight. You know all about that. I, I'm trying to talk about how to reclaim the homosexual experience, the same-sex love experience, and see the restorative elements in it for individuals and for the culture. I wanted to read a, a quote from Christine Downing that uh, talks about the restorative element in women's relationships with women. The myths about women loving women help us to see what deep human longings are expressed in such love. The longing to re-experience the total union with one another that we knew with our mothers in the beginning. The longing for relationships free of the struggle for dominance, so often characteristic of heterosexual bonds. The longing for permanent connections that are genuinely mutual and egalitarian. The longing to fully validate one's own female being and to celebrate that and her body with others. The longing to be really true to one's own spontaneous feelings and desires the longing to encourage another's creativity and find one's own inspired by it, the longing to deal with and overcome one's own misogyny and homophobia, the longing to become all one might be, the longing to be willing to give oneself to feelings of love and not evade the feelings of loss, but to go on, the longing to discover the rightful place in one's life of passion, and sexuality of relationship and solitude 
those are fundamental longings. And in looking at the love between women and trying to understand it, we really see those longings playing themselves out. subject that I feel very deeply about and I'm sure many of you do a perspective of same-sex love as restorative as having the potential not only for profound individuation for the individuals who choose this life but also for the culture and perhaps as a result of this you'll have a better understanding of what we call homophobia, our own homophobia, and the homophobia of the culture. I think there's a bit of a difference. Both involve fear and shame and hatred. Um, But the homophobia of the homosexual person, I think, is a bit different than the homophobia of the culture. But all of them, the the homophobia in any case, has its roots in the same things, I think. First of all, the fear of merger in a culture that values separativeness and separation. I think that may be one of the major components of homophobia, is the fear of what will happen when two like beings come together. It doesn't seem natural if what you value is everything being different and what you see as union is the coming together of opposites, not some kind of restoration through mirroring an analogy, subtlety and refinement. I think the second major component of homophobia is the obvious transgression of traditional gender roles. For example, when two men are sexual with one another, one man becomes the vessel at one moment and then maybe the other man at another moment. One man enters another man. Norman says the vessel equals woman. The world says the vessel equals woman. Does this mean then that at that moment the man is becoming a woman. He's transgressing a fundamental gender role. And that brings on real hatred in a culture that depends on clearly defined gender roles to maintain itself. I think a third component of homophobia is the hatred of the body. It's the hatred of the body that we experience in a culture that values logos over eros, mind over matter. And a final component of homophobia, one that's really, I think, very important for us to look at psychologically, is that I think homophobia represents an elemental hatred of the self, of an aspect of the self. Homosexual love is everything that is repressed because homosexual is other.
It's me and it's not me. Whatever is repressed when it comes out, when it comes forth, brings up everything with it. And I think it's very easy for women to be filled with self-hatred and shame anyway in a culture that has not traditionally valued the feminine. And then on top of that, if we choose to love other women, you know, it looks like a double dose of a bad thing. But it can be restorative. It reminds me, Suzuki Roshi used to say, the way out is in. So you just go deeper into it. And you come out the other side, perhaps more whole. Well, uh, with this subject of homophobia, I thought that I would uh, close this part of our uh, evening with a poem from Lily. <coughs> he was a 12th century uh, mystic. He had a very intense uh, love relationship with his teacher, Shams. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other just doesn't make any sense. So thank you very much for, for being here tonight. And we're going to take a short break and then come back and have some questions. So shall we um, have some questions? I I have to uh, confess, not only am I intuitive and spacey, I'm half deaf. So when you you, um, ask your question, would you please stand up and ask it loudly so that everyone can hear it and so I can hear it? Okay, any questions that you want to ask in public? Yes. <laughs> this is very complicated, but I'll try to make it simple. I don't know even how to begin with this. But I heard the word tonight several times of choice. And the first theory was that Jung believed that homosexuality was an immature choice. Now, later on, the view was given that it's constitutional. I see that as somewhat contradictory. I do not remember ever choosing to be gay. And I don't think that most people ever remember making that choice. And I hear the word preference used very much in referring to gay issues. And I don't think that this is something that we prefer. I think it's something, a weight that's thrown on men and women at a very early time in life. Tripp, who wrote that book of the homosexual matrix, talks about the gay feeling being the child at a very early age and he or she knows what they're going to do long before adolescence. So um, if it were, it's a two-part question really, if it were indeed a matter of choice, have you or do you have any colleagues or do you know anybody who has cured a gay individual ever? Substantiated documented report. (laughs) 
and particularly focusing on the contra- what I hear as contradictory, because I haven't read that much long, the difference between constitutional or immature choice. I'm confused here. Right. It's a wonderful question. It's, it's very confusing, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you know, if it were a choice, one would think that we could cure it because nobody in their right mind would make this choice. It's too difficult. So, in that sense, maybe choice isn't quite the word. Um, and I've, I've thought a lot about this question of constitutionality in my own life, for example, because, as I said, I was married and um, had a family and had a wonderful, uh, intimate relationship with my husband in many ways. And yet I found that for myself, I was really drawn. I felt that I felt I was like called. In a sense, it isn't a choice in that way. I felt I had to do this; that it would be uh, a violation of my own integrity not to take this step at the point where I was in my life. And I was thinking and talking with friends of mine. I have a number of friends who have uh, come to be with women later in their life and had a life with a man and family earlier in their life. Uh, That's only one form. Many women come to be with women right away and make their families with women. Um, But I was talking to my friends, and we wondered if in some way um, it might not be more difficult for a woman to honor what might be a constitutional proclivity earlier in life because women are so conditioned to fulfill their gender-appropriate role. And um, obviously some women transcend that and have the courage to go with what's right for them early on. I, I think it's a complex issue and probably varies from individual to individual. Perhaps calling it a choice is... Um, not appropriate. Perhaps it is, I think Jung's actual language, or Hopkins' language in describing Jung's attitude or theory, was that um, it was because homosexuality represented some unresolved issue with the feminine, it was an immature psychological state. So I don't know that he was talking about choice. There certainly are cases, and there is a case in, I think, in Young's work where a young man uh, became involved and married after uh, analysis. But he was also a young man, and uh, who knows what was really going on. I think it's so individual. and maybe it is in our genes from the beginning. If we go back to the idea I was presenting about being on a continuum, we all have the potential to love people of both sexes. It's a matter of what we prefer, perhaps, or what turns us on, or what does it for us at any given time in life. And um, the way that I make the most sense of it is to stay with that notion of the continuum and, and to allow for... Uh, dramatic individual difference, but I certainly um, would have to say that choice is not exactly the word. It's not a choice I made exactly. So I appreciate what you're saying. Thank you.
And is that the same experience for men? Do you know? You don't know. Any man want to speak about that? About the crossing over of thanatos and arrows in male relationships prior to AIDS or along with AIDS? Not that I, d I didn't mean to limit it. I was just thinking it was such a poignant example of how that happens. Yes. Susan Griffin in the, uh, some of you may be familiar with her work. She's a wonderful woman, a good friend of mine. She's helped me with a lot of my thinking. In an interview with her in the East Bay Express again, and uh, she was talking about something that's, it's, it's not a new idea, but that sexuality in this culture has been associated with dominance. And that the, in, in, in the patriarchal value system, there is a great deal of uh, emphasis on dominance. So it's not so much on making love as in dominance. And she was also talking about the fact that, uh, no, I guess it wasn't, she wasn't talking, somewhere else I was, I can't keep it all straight, um, that there's a difference in the masculine psyche and the feminine psyche. The masculine psyche in sexuality is more engaged in looking, vision, watching, seeing. It's more objectifying in some way. And the feminine psyche is more engaged in touching. And I use those words deliberately, feminine and masculine, because granted, as men and women, we have both on our continuum. But the proclivity in the masculine is to objectify, to look, to dominate, to control, and for the feminine to touch, to relate, to merge, so that the, the discrepancies or the difficulties often in relationships for women in love and on the side of too much giving over of themselves, quote-unquote, from a patriarchal point of view. And the errors or difficulties in their masculine uh, mode come from too much dominance. And so it's a, it's a different kind of phenomena. And I, I suppose it depends, on again, on this continuum theory I keep coming back to where each of us is with that. But I appreciate your comment. I think that issue of control... Is, is certainly a, a great one. Catherine Keller, in that book I've mentioned several times that I cannot recommend highly enough from A Broken Web, says that our control is a substitute for connection. Any other questions? 
identifying oneself as gay as being just as limiting as trying to identify oneself as heterosexual. You don't hear that much about your backside where you can you know, come out as a gay person. And now if you suddenly have this label, I am gay, so that if you just happen to have a relationship with another woman, you're somehow betraying the cause. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure I heard the, the question, but did you ask, um, were you saying that you found the labeling constrictive, too confining, and yet if you don't come out, you're betraying the cause? You know, I think that this is not a continuum, too. Um, at least it has been for me. I went through a period where I was so pissed off at my women friends who were taking refuge in a heterosexual marriage, driving their Mercedes, having a great old time, and not declaring the fact that their primary sexual love relationship was with a woman. I went through a period of being so angry at that and very hurt by it, in some way very hurt. And I thought, God damn it, you know, now my women friends who are coming forth and taking full responsibility for loving women and are they're not necessarily wearing a sign oh that's fine too if you want to do that but are coming forth and saying I choose this as a lifestyle and I'm going to live with the consequence I thought well that's the better way to go now I'm in another place on the continuum and I feel that um, we're all just doing the best we can do and we're just doing it the way we need to do it and um, I think there's enormous value in uh, living an integrated life for me and not having to split myself up into tiny boxes. For me, right now, that is very valuable. Um, and I think it's important to go through periods where you're outraged at things that aren't politically correct. I think it all has value in place. And I can appreciate your feeling you don't want to be confined to one designation. about you and that's why I said you know I can just go ahead and beam myself up and you can make up the rest of it because I mean it really is a mystery I think it's it's worthwhile to to understand our the myth that we're living out or what myth is living itself out through us if I didn't feel that that was valuable I wouldn't be psychoanalyst but I um, you don't owe anybody an explanation I'm sure it was just as real to you as my marriage was to me and the only time I'd like to sort of be rid of it is when I talked to my mother she called me the other morning she said 
Hi. 6.30 she calls me. She forgets there's a time difference. And um, she's saying, well, I think you're in a very important transition now, and I don't think you should make any big decisions. <laughs> I said, right, Mother, what is it? She said, well, you know, you're just in a transition. I feel you're, you're coming back to yourself. And uh, I said, Mother, I'm not going to be with the man. She said, well, you just never know. <laughs> You were before, and you might be again. And I'm going to pray for you every day. I said, Mother, we've had this conversation a hundred times. You can give it up now. And she said, I, I'm going to turn it over to God. I said, Mom, if it makes you happy, you pray for me every day, honey. And, you know, I'm going to do my life. I used to get furious at my mother. I used to refuse to speak. I said, if you pray for me one more time, I'm not speaking. <laughs> So I guess there's some people we do try to explain ourselves to, and it, it is sort of an enigma to them too. For example, I think because I have not always been with women, um, it had a particular impact on my family. And then there's my family is my family. And that's another whole issue. <laughs> to the last question is where I would have to come from in responding to what you're asking. I think we all have to do the best that we can at any given moment in talking about who we are. And um, we have to do what has integrity for us. And what I was trying to say is that I feel much more compassionate toward the complexities that are involved in many people's lives of coming forth. What it will mean to them in terms of their careers or their jobs or their families. And unfortunately, it's not just a one-way street. I think that it's a, a community responsibility. I saw this happen 
at the Lillian Institute in San Francisco in a way that was very poignant. It was a member, an, an analyst in our community who had been married and also was in, uh, and had ended that marriage and was in a relationship with a man. And he died of AIDS. And he died without letting anyone know he was dying. And the anguish that I went through about that and that I know our community went through, some members of the community, some people were so enraged at him because he just left us. But many other people felt a sense of deep self-reflection on what on God's earth was going on here that this man could not be all of who he was with us. So I think it's kind of a give and take that somehow it's a community effort. It's the effort of the individual to come forth in the community, but it's also the effort of the community to make an environment that's safe enough for the individual to come forth in, and be whoever they are. So I don't think it's a simple matter. Um, and you know, it's very exhausting to live this life in some ways because you haven't the cultural role models, you have a lot of opposition, there's a lot of understandable sensitivity that borders on paranoia about walking down the street arm in arm with your lover. I mean, you can be killed for that. I don't think a heterosexual person who hasn't had that experience can realize what that's like. So I think the best thing we can do as a community heterosexual and homosexual together on this, on this sexual preference continuum is to work to create a safer and safer environment so that people can say whatever it is they need to say about themselves. It's very complex. Um, and sometimes families are very rejecting. My, uh, the woman I'm in a relationship with is... Um, right now working with the Marine Ains Project. She's a case manager for this project. And every day, she said almost every day, because the cases of AIDS in Marine are soaring, and almost every day she's on the phone to the parents of someone who's sick and who needs them. And, and the parents can't. You know, well, we're kind of busy. We have a golf game this week. Yeah, but your son's dying. You know, that there are those kinds of denial systems that are very difficult to break through in some families. Other families are right there. They're right there for the love. They're right there for the living. They're right there for the dying. And others are alienating. Um, I think it's a very complex decision, but one with individual and collective consideration. What's the interaction between the community and the individual to create the environment where we can all live more freely and liberated with our deepest truths? I don't know if that's a helpful answer. And it's hard on children sometimes. A friend of mine was telling me that her 10-year-old daughter came to her this week and said, Mommy, what's a lesbian? And uh, her mother has been in a relationship with a woman. It's not at the moment, but has been. And my friend said that she took her 10-year-old daughter, and they sat down together, and they had a really long talk about it. And, you know, the little girl had the same reaction to an explicit description of sexuality between women that I remember my, my stepdaughter having a 10 to the explicit description of sex between men and women. Yeah. She was like, ugh. 
<laughs> you know. So I think the whole issue of how to talk with children is uh, is a profound and complex one too. I don't have an answer for that. An answer. But we have to all support and help each other and not push people. I I don't know about this business of outing. I, I'm a, at times a mixed mind about that because I think it does help a sense of solidarity for more of us who have made this or, or followed this call. Excuse me, I must have made this choice. Um, to <laughs> just one walking contradiction um, to uh, stand up and be counted. I think there is enormous value on it when you can do it. I was on a panel at the American Academy of Psychoanalysis that was chaired by a psychiatrist, a Sullivanian from New York City, Bertram Schaffner. Dr. Schaffner is 83, I think. And Dr. Schaffner came out about seven years ago at an American Psychoanalytic Association meeting. And he just said the best he could. He was the most refined, lovely, deep man and he'd lived as a gay man all his life you know, I don't know I don't know where that line is it's the same with regard to the war you know where's the line between just saying by God this has got to stop and saying we're all just doing the best we can it's a continuum we just have to find our way with it how about one last question I'd like you to, to talk a little bit more about the restorative process, as you understand it, uh, because within that, I hear some a subtle assumption that that there's something that needs to be restored, and that once it is restored, we will become something else. And I want to know what that's going to be. <laughs> Stick around for the late news. <laughs> You're not coming to the workshop tomorrow, are you? <sighs> What's that going to be? Well, I think as a um, lesbian and feminist and woman, I have no doubt that there's something enormous to be restored in the soul of every woman and on this planet. I don't think that's a mystery. I don't think you have to be a lesbian feminist to notice that things are a mess. Um, and it seems that a lot of what has to be restored has to do with the feminine dimension of psyche, reality, life, a restoration in some way of the earth. I heard on the news in a cab coming over to my friend's home for dinner that as of today, there are 140 oil wells in Kuwait on fire. 
And I remember the interview with Carl Sagan on 60 Minutes in which he said if all 380 of the oil wells in Kuwait were set on fire as promised by Saddam Hussein, that the sun would go out on that part of the earth, that the sun would go out on the whole earth for the better part of a year because the, the pollution would be so intense, burning all of it for six months at a time. And then they interviewed the scientist from uh, the task force at the White House, and he said, this was unbelievable, he said, oh no, it's only going to go out over there. <laughs> what, what needs to be restored is there's a fundamental thought disorder <laughs> at work. Gregory Bateson, as I read in the article, generously calls it the epistemological era of Occidental culture. But the, what has to be restored is the notion that we're all separate. That that's over there and this is over here. Okay? And I think that the, the reason I call the restorative link the feminine is because the feminine has been seen as the aspect that's uh, most relational and, and most interested in relationship, not separating out, but bringing together. So what that would look like, God, I... I, I can't make a generalization, but I know what it feels like. You know, I know what it feels like in moments in my life. And in other moments, I'm in such despair about whether or not we'll ever be able to restore what needs to be restored. The, uh, maybe what it would look like is the mind of this poet, Mary Oliver. Some of you may be familiar with her. She won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1984, and she lives in Provincetown. This is a phenomenal book. It's called House of Light. This is called Some Questions You Might Ask. Is the soul solid like iron, or is it tender and breakable like the wings of a moth in the beak of an owl? Who has it and who doesn't? I keep looking around me. The face of the moose is as sad as the face of Jesus. The swan opens her white wings slowly. In the fall, the black bear carries leaves into the darkness. One question leads to another. Does the soul have a shape? Like an iceberg? Or like the eye of a hummingbird? Does it have one lung like the snake and the scallop? Why should I have it? and not the anteater who loves her children. Why should I have it and not the camel? Come to think of it, what about the maple trees? What about the blue iris? What about all the little stones sitting alone in the moonlight? What about roses and lemons and their shining leaves? What about the grass? Maybe what needs to be restored is the respect for the soul and all living beings. And how we get there, I think, is through some revaluing of the feminine to counterbalance the patriarchal oppression that we've all lived with, regardless of sexual pre preference. Thank you.
This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.